To another episode of the NRL All Stars podcast. This is Barnsley here for the weekly talk and footy episode. It was going to be Wilfred the Catfish Z jumping on board, and I think a few people were looking forward to that because he's a Brisbane Broncos fan. There is a lot of Brisbane Broncos to talk about this week in the Talk and Footy podcast. Unfortunately, due to a last minute work commitment, I know work getting in the way of podcasts. Everyone go on to Twitter and have a go at Wilfred about that. How dare he put work first, but he did. But I got a very, very able replacement who is also a Brisbane Broncos fan, so it fits in nicely. Tim O'Connor from the Supercoach Tragics podcast, and uh, mate, you're a Broncos fan too. You even went to the game last night. Thanks for filling in. It's uh, not too big a shoes for Wilfred. So uh, thanks very much right. for having me, Barnsley. It's always good to come on and talk footy with uh, with yourself. Good. Well, for everyone that's listening. Uh, obviously, this is a weekly talking footy episode. No super coach in this one. If you like the super coach episodes, they're the Tuesday record for TLT. They hit on a Wednesday talking footy every Friday. This is a week though where there's quite a few things to talk about in the footy world. Um, so it's going to be a pretty juicy one. First things first, though, we normally go through the round review and look, Tim. I think one of the big things for last round before we even quickly breeze over a couple of games and the highlights is. It was around just with heaps of points. You know, it was pretty amazing. And when you look at some of the stats, 466 points were scored. Uh, that's the most points in an eight-game round ever. And that's just huge enough as it is. But it also had the highest average margin, which was 32.3-point margin since 2014. So almost a decade. Uh, there was a lot of blowouts, a lot of point scoring in it. Uh, I got a perfect round, Tim. So I, I kind of, and I sort of think at this time of year, I'm not that surprised at these type of things. There was a lot more points than you normally get, but I got a perfect round for a reason. What normally happens, I think, at this point is the teams that are supposed to win do, and the teams that are supposed to lose kind of do as well, and they kind of do it badly. Yeah, look, I uh, I managed to tip a perfect round as well. Uh, all. It happened by default, actually, but it was the way I was going to go regardless. I um, I just missed lockout for the Thursday night game, was busy doing something with the family. But, um, yeah, you get the away team, and that's where I was going anyway, so it didn't make too much difference. But, um, yeah, look, it's like you said, mate, it's, it's that time of year where the finals start rolling around. The bottom teams seem to struggle for numbers and injuries and all the rest of it, and then you've got the top teams that just start really, really kicking into gear and... Um, getting things ready for finals footy. So it's it's not a big surprise. Um, I think probably the extent of some of the blowouts was a little bit more of a surprise. It seems things seem to turn back to, uh, to 2020, 2021, the way that the footy's been played. But, yeah, I mean, you've got to expect those sorts of things this time of year, I guess. Yeah, and look, there's a few of the games that you can just throw it straight away. Like the Cowboys won 48-4 to against the Warriors. A very expected scoreline. Uh, the Eels forty-two to six over the Dogs. The Dogs beat them by thirty odd points uh, six seven weeks before that, but that was pretty much the scoreline that you expected. The Sharkies forty to six over the struggling Manly Seagulls again, another expected one. Uh, but one of the ones that wasn't expected, and I'm sorry to put you on this one, but uh, the other big scoreline 
that was not expected was a 60 to 12 thrashing that the storm handed the Brisbane Broncos. That was at Suncorp stadium. And I think that most people were surprised by that. Um, the Broncos haven't been traveling well. So I wasn't surprised that the storm beat them comprehensively, but to get 60 points put on you when just a few weeks before that, they were in the top four and they were still fighting for the top four um, last week. That was pretty remarkable. It was a game where they scored second, 12th minute. And then after that, you know, you've got what six unanswered tries and then another three, three tries at the end of the game in the final 10 minutes. You know, they really just smashed the Brisbane Broncos and it wasn't even close. Uh, it was pretty poor effort. It's unexpected. Uh, the Broncos completion rate was poor. Their missed tackles were poor. They ended up with 66 missed tackles against the Melbourne Storm, which is unbelievable. They actually got less penalties as well. The Storm conceded six penalties to the Broncos three. So it's not even like they were heavily penalised. 15 errors as well is pretty massive. It was just a terrible performance by the Broncos. That was the one last week that I think stood out out of those big floggings. That was the one where you went, well, I didn't particularly expect that, even though the Broncos haven't been travelling too well at Suncorp. The Storm have only been clicking into gear for a couple of weeks themselves. You sort of thought that one would be a lot closer than it was. Yeah, look, to be brutally honest, it was really hard to watch um, being there. We we seem to be just one of those teams that once you put two or three on us, we, we really struggle and fall to pieces really quickly, um, which is sad to see as a as a supporter and a member. Um, it keeps coming back to, um, I've mentioned this in a couple of other podcasts that I've been on lately, Pat Carrigan, I think he's been extremely underestimated how much difference he makes to our team. He might not be the prettiest footballer on the park, um, not meaning physical appearance, I mean just the way that he plays, he's very much meat and potatoes. But the guy, you can just about bank on somewhere between 50 and 60 tackles a game. And I think in this day and age with NRL and the speed of the game and everything else, I think once you take 60 tackles out of any football team, I think you'll probably find that the stat sheet at the end of the game shows that they, strangely enough, miss about 60 tackles. So I think in in those sorts of games where we're getting carved up up the middle, you take your your most predominant forward out of it, as in your your tackle bot forward, um, and then all of a sudden there's sort of not a lot left to, to, to do the hard work. Obviously, Payne Haas only played 50 straight. Um, he didn't come back on for most of the second half. And I guess that they just got to the point where we had more important games to, to win over these last two rounds. And so they, they sat him and gave him a bit of a rest. Corey Oates ended up um, leading the hit-up count for the Broncos. 14 runs mm. uh, after that. Payne Haas in 52 minutes, and then you got guys like Jensen and Ricky at 11 runs. Uh, it just the Broncos forward pack, particularly the last month of footy, really hasn't stood up for me. Uh, and I think that some of that's certainly to do with Carrigan, uh, but certainly overall, um, I don't think their attitude's been great. And you can see that in the defence and the errors as well. But look, let's move on to some of the other floggings too. I, I left out the Roosters flogging of the Tigers, 72 to six. I didn't leave it out because it was unexpected that the Tigers would get flogged, uh, but it's the highest score the Roosters have put on the Tigers. And it's, uh, I think, the only time the team's gotten a 70 this year. So it's one of those scores where you go, well, you know, the Roosters will win by 50, but you don't expect them to sort of put up 72 points. It was an absolute clinic. Uh, the, the Tigers are obviously struggling heavily. They didn't score a try until the 72nd minute. Uh, and they've also conceded 
four tries to Nat Butcher on one edge and two tries and three line breaks to Angus Crichton on the other edge. You know, the two edge back rails just ripped into shreds. But really, it was a team effort where everyone on the Roosters side feasted and just absolutely blitzed them. It was expected, Tim. But at the same time, I think that, uh, and I mentioned this to some of my uh, Roosters friends that are fans, that there is some positive takeaways out of that. Like a lot of the time you see a team get flogged and you just, and you, you, you know, you're a supporter of the team that puts up the big score and you're like, oh, yeah, but you can't take much away from it. There is sometimes some things you can take away from it. Uh, I think that the, the structure that the Roosters have at the moment, since they've swapped those halves around on opposite sides a little while ago, the structure that they showed in that game, uh, the way that they, the shape that they had on the field with their attack, the options that they took, uh, how they were passing the ball, the lack of errors is a big deal as well. The Roosters have had too many errors in their game that have stunted their attack as well. All those things are very transferable to other games. So I thought that they looked like a real powerhouse of the, the competition the last couple of weeks, really. And they're sort of back to the side that we thought they would have been at the start of the year. So even though it was an expected flogging, 72 points, it's hard to put 72 points on anyone. It doesn't matter where they are on the ladder. It doesn't matter how good you are. So I still thought that was a pretty impressive performance by the Roosters and really all their players looked pretty in sync and, and firing. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree. It, it's funny. You look at, to, to, to put it in real mathematic terms, the fact that they're scoring a point a minute um, or throughout the whole game between the two sides, scored a point a minute. Like, that's just unheard of these days. You might be able to do it for 30 or 40 or um, or like a straight half of footy or something like that. But to play that way for, for 80 minutes is just unbelievable. But it's also interesting the way that they scored their points and the way they, they made the metres. It, it wasn't up around the outside edges like they normally are. It was up the middle of the park and uh, and on the the edge, like as in the second row edges. Um, seemed to be where they scored the tries from. I mean... They, um, Angus and, and Butcher both crossed multiple times. Um, the boys up the middle were fantastic. I think um, Matt Lodge signing with them has just been amazing for them. They've they've had uh, Takaaho out for a few weeks. Um, they've had uh, Jared Wirahagres in and out. Um, so they, I think he's just almost say that he's sort of the final piece in the puzzle. The way that they can now take two top class front row forwards off and bring on two more um, is obviously a luxury that a lot of other teams don't have. So I think that over the next four or five weeks, I think they're just going to absolutely smash teams up the middle. If they can keep their uh, naughty boys on the park, then I, I think they could be, mate, they could be anything. They could, they could really trouble the Panthers or the Storm this year. Yeah, I agree. I'm not just saying that as a Roosters fan. Um, it's, Obviously, a big disparity in the possession rate that game. Like the Roosters had 60% possession. But in saying that, once again, and this has been the story for a few weeks, they've absolutely smashed the run meters. Yeah. Like the, the run meters for the Roosters were 2,110 to the Tigers, 1,052. They have more than doubled the Tigers' run meters. And a large portion of that, um, if you drill it down to the actual pack, it's it's a similar sort of story, even if you don't look at overall run metres. They did that the week before against the Cowboys, and, and they've been doing it. And the big thing is that, like you mentioned, it, it didn't even have Takiyaho there, and he's going to come back in now this week. It didn't even have Collins there. Oh. So if they're dominating like that through the middle and so easily, and they've just done it to Brisbane, the Cowboys, uh, and the Tigers packs last, the last three weeks extensively, 
then adding those guys back in, it's going to be very formidable in the middle. And I think everybody can see the sort of class they have to put on points if um, if it's working through the middle of the field with their forward pack dominating. Uh, a couple of other quick ones as well for the round that was interesting. Um, South had a bit of a comeback to earth game. They they played the Panthers. I think a lot of people thought that that was going to be an easy win for them, which I never did. I thought coming into last round it was a bit of a danger game because South have been doing well, but a lot of that's been beating up on teams that aren't very good as well. Um, and, you know, you kind of expect it. And they beat Parramatta convincingly the week before. Para had one of their bad games, which they have. And then, you know, it's the Warriors flogging them. Um, they lost to the Sharkies. They had a good game against the Storm, but the Storm weren't at their full strength. You know, it's a win against the Dogs by eight points. I don't think they've been. I think they've been going well, and I wanted and I like giving them credit. But I think we got to the point with that Penrith game last week, that matchup where people were giving them too much credit, just expecting them to win because Penrith didn't have their halves. When it was actually a much harder game than that, I thought. So playing at a core stadium, still they lost twenty six to twenty two. Uh, I thought the Panthers played well. Uh, the thing with the Panthers is even without their halves, their defence is going to be good. Oh. So it limited the South Sydney attack quite a bit where they only got their 22 points and normally they score quite a bit more than that. Um, certainly guys like you know AJ, Cody, Latrell, they're all good in attack. Uh, Latrell in particular was still good in attack, but he made a few more mistakes than he normally does. And that's a part. And that's part and parcel really of coming up against the Penrith side that still has really good defence without their halves there. So it was a bit of a... Come back down. It's a bit of a coming back down to earth game, I thought, for them. But I don't think it was unexpected as what a lot of people thought. They can probably take a lot out of that, and that's the glass half full approach. Uh, but at the same time, as well, the glass half empty approach is: have we been overrating South Sydney? And I kind of thought that to myself a little bit. You know, Latrell's been on fire; they've been playing well. But when they're coming up against these tougher sides, how are they going to perform? We'll know a lot more this week, but certainly against Penrith last week, it was a good litmus test, um, and it was a close game, Tim but they still weren't quite up to the mark despite the Penrith halves not being there. Yeah, look, I totally agree, mate. If it's, um, it's interesting. They're, they're certainly, the Bunnies are definitely a confidence team um, and they always have been. You look at the the confidence that just comes out of out of Luttrell and, and Cody's always been a highly accomplished player when, when playing with confidence. It's, um, yeah, it was funny. It's, it was sort of a bit of a coin toss for a lot of that game um, and I think the just the pressure makes makes a difference. I think, and I think once you start, I guess it's kind of like the Broncos game last night. Once you start making errors, they, all of a sudden they start to snowball. It um, it wasn't the prettiest game of football, but um, tell you what, the fact that it was still so close, and then you factor in Cleary and Luai going back into that Panthers team, they're going to be a tough side to beat, aren't they? It'll be very hard. I think Penrith have really accounted for themselves well. And the fact that they've now got Luai this week back, uh, it's going to make a huge difference um, already for them. I think him coming in two weeks before the finals start really helps them a lot because I had question marks about how it would affect them if both Luai and Cleary were out for that extended period of time in their first game back is the finals. I think Luai coming back a couple of weeks beforehand helps them a fair bit too. Yeah, look, absolutely. I I mentioned this on the Tragics podcast on Wednesday night. I think that even if Luai was sort of 95% fit, it it wouldn't have surprised me that they did push him this week. Um, Obviously, he wasn't expected to come back till next week and then Cleary come back first week of the finals. But I think the fact that if if he was sort of fit enough, um, that they'll give him a run. I'll be interested to see how he actually goes, whether he is fully fit yet or uh, or whether he's just there to give him a bit of extra time between now and when Nathan comes back. 
I think it's a very smart move on the Panthers' behalf as long as he obviously gets through the 80 minutes unscathed. Um, I think it's it would have been a bit of a tough ask to bring them both back uh, as in first week of the finals. Also a little bit tough for the two boys who filled in since um, since Cleary and Luai have been away. Um, but you just kind of, I mean, obviously they're there to do a job. They're there to, and they've been doing a pretty good job um, in Salmon and uh, and Sean O'Sullivan. But yeah, like it's it's got to be pretty tough for those boys as well that you know that you're really only playing a month of footy and then um, and then you'll be back to reserve grade. Um, obviously they'll be there training all the time in case something happens to one of the two rock star halves. But um, yeah, it's, it's um, they've done well. Absolutely, they've done well to to keep the momentum going. Uh, Panthers certainly haven't been smashed in any games. They, they haven't been at their peak performance, but they've still been scoring wins and, and scoring points. It's interesting how things will... Well, I'm really interested to see from a football sense how it goes because the obviously the outside backs haven't been getting as much of the ball uh, with Luai, especially the guys on the left with Luai being out. So I'm really interested to see how much difference that makes this week. I'm assuming Luai will go back to left-hand side but I think he will probably roam a bit and, and Sean O'Sullivan will probably spend a bit more time just camped on the right. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you there. Um, it's it's also one of those things where I think that the the Panthers will start mining back into form now as well. It's a good game for them to have against the Warriors because I think that it allows them to uh, get their attack going, get a bit more confidence, and it's a good, good game for Luai to return it. Like a lot of people will sort of probably think, oh, look, it's better if he returns against a tougher matchup like South's last week or a harder one or may as well rest him for the Warriors one. It's I, I actually think that it's really good when a player can come back in, especially a star player, can come back in and have a bit of an easier hit out. And I don't mean any disrespect to the Warriors, but they're at the bottom for a reason and they're conceding the most points or near the most points in the comp for outside backs. So for someone like Luai, you know, he can come in play really well and, and get some tries on the try assists on the board or even a try himself, get his running game going. He'll, he'll probably put up some good good attacking stats. And that, that confidence, I think, is great. So that's one of the, the upsides of bringing him back for one of these easier games too. Uh, look, let's talk about the last game I was going to touch on for the round that has gone past, and that is the Dragons versus the Titans. Touching on that one because the Dragons won 46-26. And it was just so disappointing from the Gold Coast. I know that's the story of their season. But a lot of people tipped them um, to win last week. Uh, I was close to doing it, but then I, it was at Wynn Stadium, so I didn't, thankfully. But a lot of people did. The week before, they won against Manly, 44-24. to 24. Uh, And overall, you know, they have shown some fight the last few weeks or a couple of weeks. But that game last week, you know, they were in the game. Francis Molo gets sent off, which we'll talk about in a second. But the send-off for Molo is a big talking point, which we'll hit on. But the other talking point from that send-off is that normally, and one of the reasons why the send-offs or even sin bins are so contentious this year when they happen, because obviously we've spoken in length about how they you can't tell what it's going to be or if they're even going to get sent at all, but they're contentious because the team that benefits with the 13 players normally goes on with it and puts on points. This was the opposite, Tim. The Gold Coast Titans let in like three unanswered tries after a bloke's been sent off on the other team. You know, it was just crazy. And it was like the opposite. You would have sworn if you saw that red little um, line at the top of the screen above the teams, that they they made a mistake on Fox Sports. It was actually meant to be on 
meant to be on the Titans because they were just getting drilled by this dragon side. But it was the other way around. The dragons were a man short and they just drilled the Titans and ended up winning the game by 20 points. Yeah, it's unbelievable in this day and age, isn't it? You, you do see quite often, um, because a lot of teams do it as a bit of a training drill, they'll automatically just, they'll train with a man down against the, um, like the reserve grade team or, or whoever they're doing the training at the time. So teams are used to sort of doing it that way. Um, but what's really interesting to see is it's quite often a lot of teams when they go down down a man, they do score. I guess it's probably because they are so used to it and they put those simulation processes of training into place. But you certainly never see a team scoring three unanswered tries against uh, an NRL quality side. I could understand in a reserve grade game or something along those lines. But yeah, it's yeah, the mind certainly boggles as to how the uh, how the defence of the Titans fell apart that much against a much uh, much more reduced uh, Dragon side. That's for sure. And the send off itself, um, I thought it was a pretty fair send off. Uh, I guess I certainly think it's in line. Like I think they had to send him off with with what they've set as a standard this year, and we question on several of the podcasts and certainly, you know, in the media and everything and fans just watching the games, always on the old definition that you hear them talk about this year of it was high, it was direct contact to the head. And this was one of the ones where it was high, it was a swinging arm and it was a hard swinging arm. It could have been avoided and it was direct across the the middle of his head and across his face. There was no mitigating circumstances in it either. So I just I, I couldn't argue with the send off. I did wonder when it happened. Oh, is he just is he going to go to the bin or is it going to be sent off? I, I really wasn't sure, um, to be honest. And that's probably the standard that the NRL set this year with not really knowing. But you know, it, it had to at least be ten in the bin, and you couldn't argue with the send off at all. So I was reasonably happy with that. Um, with that decision. How did you see the decision itself? Yeah, look, I absolutely agree, mate. I know um, the last couple of times I've been on this program, we, we've talked about exactly that. The uh, the arm was swinging, the contact was high, it was direct to the head, so they sort of start to run out of options after a while. I think as far as um, consistency goes with some of the other send-offs this year, I, I don't think they had too many choices. Yeah, a, a pretty fair one, but yeah, it ended up working out all right for the Dragons and spurred them on to win the game, so can't be too unhappy with the send-off the Dragons. Uh, look, let's move along. One of the things that came from round 23 and one of the topics that we're going to discuss now is the James Tamau suspension. So obviously in that Roosters game, it got quite heated between himself and the referee. Uh, The statement that he made towards the referee was, you're effing incompetent, and he repeated it a few times. He also turned around and gave him more of a serve, but the referee wouldn't have it. Um, now, can I just say before we even go into the whole suspension and stuff and, and all that controversy, I, I love it. Like the referee really took um, control of that. He didn't back down. And I like that. Like I think that he really controlled the situation. And I almost laughed because I was like, you know, he really put James Tamau in his place. And if you look at it like a little bit lightheartedly, you know, like it's it's good because like James Tamau is, you know, a, a monster of a man. He's like six foot five or something. He's huge. And he's given he's given the referee a gobful and stuff, and he's turned around at him again. And the refs like there aggressively say, "No, off, go now." I loved it. I thought the ref handled it perfectly. And it's how you used to see referees handle games; like they really managed the players and really asserted authority. So, without even going into the controversy, which we're going to get to now, I thought the ref handled it really well, to be honest, and should be applauded. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And it's been a long time since refs have taken that sort of control of a game. Um, I think they get fairly flustered with, uh, I mean, 
rightfully so when you've got 30,000 fans screaming at you and, and that sort of thing these days I can understand and you know that the cameras are on you and everyone's mic'd up these days and uh, and you sort of don't seem to miss much but yeah look I, I absolutely applaud the referee he he stood firm and strong and um, and sent him like the fact that he, he gave him 10 and then uh, Tarmel wanted to keep carrying on with it and then he sent him to the bin I'm a high school teacher, mate. I deal with that stuff every day. Um, it's interesting, like, when, when you sort of get sworn at and things like that. We have a saying at our school where uh, our, we, call, we sort of use the lines, Are you, uh, do you understand you're not being a safe, respectful learner right now? It's sort of our school motto. So I always put that back on the kids when they swear or they give me a gobful and say, look, I, I don't appreciate that. You're not really demonstrating being a safe, respectful learner. And then if the kid wants to carry on with that, uh, that's generally when I send them to the office after that. So you always sort of give them an, uh, an opportunity to apologise. I'll generally give them three strikes. If in the space of 10 or 15 seconds they want to continue on, then then you march them. And that's exactly what the referee did. I don't think he had too many options. Um, he basically asked him politely to uh, to apologise and pull his head in, gave him an opportunity to chill out and settle down and um, tell me I wanted to keep going. So, no, I think he dealt with it well. Yeah, I, I thought the ref did a very good job with it. Uh, you know, it was the right call. It had to happen uh, with what James Tamal did. Uh, now, obviously, the offshoot of that is that he got charged and it was going to be a two-week suspension, missing round 24 and 25. The Tigers aren't going to make the finals. And this is the last season of his career. So it was going to be a sad way for James's career to end. Uh, and I did feel bad about that. I thought that he showed good remorse afterwards. Uh, he was he showed great leadership afterwards, and it's something that I think when Tamal finishes playing this year, he's going to be remembered for. And it was a lot of leadership. He obviously led the Penrith Panthers as captain as well, and he has shown a lot of leadership and garnered a lot of respect throughout his career, which you know is why it was quite out of character for him. And he mentioned that out afterwards. Every way that it was handled from everyone. I thought was pretty outstanding. And that's not to wipe away what he did, but look, things happen on the field. You get heated. You want to swear at a ref. Everybody could do it, you know. So I I just think that it was actually all handled well from everyone. Obviously, we then get to the judiciary. Now, some people were sort of like, oh, well, why is he challenging and he did the wrong thing? It's either going to end his career or he's got nothing to lose and he can challenge it and get get a final swan song game in his NRL career. Like, every player would challenge it. It would be silly not to because you're not going to lose if you don't. I tended to agree with the masses that, look, he's probably not going to win, but, you know, you, you may as well do it. He won on the downgrade. So it went from two matches to one. Now, I, initially, Tim, I wasn't sure how to feel about it. I agree with the general consensus and most of the media outlets that, have, you know, jumped on this that you can't have a good bloke clause where you sure. discount someone for being a good bloke. You have to punish the action, the same as a high tackle or anything else. Um it's, I agree with all that. One of the things that I struggled with, though, is that I sort of saw it, you know, Brandon Smith got three weeks, but he called a referee a cheat. And that's that's a big deal. Like, if you say a referee's a cheat, you know, that that's a big deal. Whereas James Tamau, to me, did the wrong thing, but, but swore at the referee and just, you know, basically in frustration, you know, swore at him and said that you're incompetent you know, because he was getting the decisions wrong, according to James. You know, to me, that those type of things happen all the time, um, two degrees, and, and it's a different line in the sand than the stuff when you're saying a referee's a cheat and all this other stuff, you know. So to me, it was different to the Brandon Smith stuff. So it had to be less. Brandon Smith got three weeks. Tam out charged with two, so you could argue he did get you less. The thing that I struggled with in my head was that I sort of always thought, looking at it, look, I, I do think one week's enough. 
And I sort of thought that at the time, you know, I sort of thought, look, I hope he doesn't get two weeks because I do think one week's enough for having to go to a referee and swear and anything like that. Yeah, you know, I think Hargrave's got a week for it um, a bit earlier in the year for something similar. Uh, I just thought it should have been a week to begin with. But in saying that, if they're going to go for two weeks and that's a suspension, I don't understand how they downgraded it either. Yeah, look, I, to be honest, mate, I actually really struggle with um, with the comparison between that and the Brandon Smith one. I See, I don't see a, a lot of difference between Brandon Smith calling the referee a cheat or Tarmel telling the ref he's basically incompetent and shouldn't be doing the job. Um, I think one's, well, no, let's look at it. They're, I think they're both personal attacks for, for almost similar reasons. Um, one's saying you want the other team to win, and I understand that. But when you say to the bloke you're incompetent and you shouldn't be refing this game or you're substandard or whatever else, and then when the ref tells him to pull his head in and then he wants to keep going with it, like Smith didn't say you're a cheat and then the ref said, hey, I don't appreciate that. And he said, well, the other team's winning by miles or that's a really tough call and it's hard for us to you to keep doing that. Well, obviously, we're going to think you're a cheat. Like I, I don't see much difference between the two statements, to be honest. Um, I think the referee gave both players opportunity to pull their heads in and um, I don't see how Brandon Smith gets three weeks and Tamau gets one for both personal attacks on the referee. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, see, I see it a little bit differently to, to the way you do and um, and I guess that's how the media has drummed it up as well. We've all got differing opinions of it. I totally understand that pulling at heartstrings, that's not how Tamau wants to be rec- uh, wants to be remembered for the game but Put the shoe on the other foot. If that was Brandon, well, if that was Brandon Smith's last game in Melbourne in front of the Melbourne crowd or whatever, and that's his farewell going to um, uh, off to the Roosters next year, like does does Brandon Smith only get a week? Um, the fact that it was five or six weeks out from the final, so he had time to go and sit down and chill out and whatever else. Like, if that was a different situation, would he have got three weeks? Yeah, I know, I know exactly where you're coming from, and I, I, like, I can agree to to a degree. Um, I think it's just. I think it's how we see things. Like to me, if the like cheating is that you're you're doing something on purpose to 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 make the outcome of the match happen for you. You know, you're you're doing it on purpose basically. That's cheating. Whereas yeah. when you're saying you're incompetent, so you're you're not you're not any good at your job. You know, it's not intentional. You just you're not very good. You know, it's like saying to a player you're throwing a game as opposed to your shit. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that's where that's where I'm coming from. And like it might be like a a really small thing, and it probably is. Like, and as far as the words that you use and stuff, you know, it's all pretty similar. And how it feels if you're a referee is probably pretty similar. And the ref probably, even when Brendan Smith said you're a cheat, probably didn't take it as you're trying to fix a match. But I think that the optics of it. And this is where the NRLs always sort of come from. And professional sport really comes from is as soon as you mention the word cheat, or you're trying to make them win, or something like that, then you just you, you just jump into a completely different tier, whether you mean to or not. Uh, and that's why I sort of I see it how I do. I, I agree though. Like you can't just say, you know, it'd be nice that he played his last game, so let's downgrade it. I I would have liked to have seen a little bit more visibility, uh, a transparency on how they came to the decision. Because uh, I don't think that we really got much of that. You know, it's just saying that he's been an outstanding player. He's shown remorse and he's a good bloke, basically. That's not enough. You know, I'd really like to hope that there was more of an argument than that made for the panel to actually downgrade it. I, I was okay with the one week, really, if that was the initial charge. I do agree that cutting it is bad. 
Um, but it's one of those things, Tim, where it's a double-edged sword. Like, I feel like it's, it is a poor decision with what the judiciary's made. It does set a bit of a dangerous precedent. At the same time, I feel good for James Tamau that he gets to play his last game. So it, oh, know, at least there's yeah, a positive yeah, yeah. out of it. Yeah, and that's it. That, obviously, as a player or, or in any sport, any profession, that's not the way that you want to be remembered, that you were sent early. Um, you want to come back. You want to say your final goodbyes and, and play your best game of footy that you possibly can, and, and that's how you want to finish up on. Yeah, unfortunately, this is going to be another black mark against the NRL and judiciary's consistency with the match review committee this year, uh, and that's just a, a long, long list of those. NRLW, last week, started up again. Uh, there was a few really good highlights. Three games, and next year we're going to have more games, as I mentioned on the podcast the week before. Um, I am looking forward to the Roosters opening up their first home game this week at the new stadium. That's going to be phenomenal. But the first game of the round was the Roosters smashing Parramatta 38-16. to 16. Uh, That was a real highlight, obviously, as a Roosters fan. But I have to say, I, I know that, Tim, you mentioned that you didn't see the game. Um, so I'll, I'll let you know. Isabel Kelly scored in the 10th and the 13th minute. And one of the one of the do not argue she put on to the opposing centre was just remarkable. <laughs> she she played phenomenal. And like it, for anyone that doesn't um hasn't gotten into the women's game yet or doesn't like it or whatever, or I've given it a go before, go and watch that Roosters Parramatta game because that that first game of the season kicking off on the Saturday was a lot I saw a lot of people converted. I saw a lot of people say the quality of this is about as good as you can get. And it was 38 to 16 as well. It had a lot of points in it, but they were really good points. Uh, so it was, a, it was a really good first game for me. And it was 18-12 at the half and then obviously blew out a little bit. But Isabel Kelly, I have to just finish on her outstanding first game. Oh, I just I love watching her play as a Roosters fan. She's my favourite NRLW player. Yeah, look, it's, um, the, NRL, the, the women's game, it's certainly on, on the up. Uh, and the NRL is trying to do everything they possibly can to to make it a quality product, and I think that's really good. They're they're getting ladies from other sports, um, so they're they're trying to follow the same model that that a lot of the NRL clubs, but just professional sport in general, do. And I, I think that's great for the game. It's great for for women in sport to have another professional code to to get stuck into. Obviously, the AFL has done really well so far, and they've been doing it for some time. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's good also that they haven't just tried to start with a ten team comp or a twelve team comp or something. They've started tried to build it as it goes, and uh, I, I guess just adding another team every couple of years is certainly seems to be the right way to do things. Yeah, hundred percent. And I, I also neglected to me- mention Jess Sergis, who you know the, the Roosters have got Isabel Kelly on one side and Sergis on the other, and it's just such an incredible one-two punch. Um, and one of the things that I like about it that I remembered watching this first game of the NRLW season is, you know, even though the quality hasn't been there all through the years while it's been building up, uh, one of the things that's there is that they do play footy a lot less structured. And, you know, we get a lot of conventions in the NRL of ways that you need to play or particularly with some teams, they're very rigid on, you know, you've got basically a patch of grass if you're an edge second row on the left and things like that. You don't get that as much in the NRLW. And I like that because it's like, how footy's played in parks, how footy was played before the NRL became too rigid in the last sort of couple of decades. Uh, and you saw that look, with Isabel Kelly at one point, for instance, you know, she's playing on the left and then she comes across to the right for a, for a backline movement, for an actual play that they called and ends up score- and ends up being a try off off that play. But, um, 
you don't get that in the NRL very much. Like Manu does it sometimes for the Roosters, but you just don't get you know a left center coming across to the right hand side for an attacking play that the that the half is actually called to run. You know, and I love that sort of stuff because that's like park footy, footy at its roots level type of play where you just play what's in front of you and you're not getting constrained in in how you're playing footy. And I think that really comes through in the women's game as well. And it's something that's improved quite a bit. And I think that sort of thing will happen a bit more often. I guess, uh, like any product as they're starting out, you've obviously got difference in quality of certain players and different experience from certain players. So I guess similar to like what you were saying, when you were talking about it, I thought about Joey Manu straight away for the same reason. I think um, when you've got uh, good backline players, you want to try and get them involved in the play as much as possible. So if that means taking your your right side centre and putting them over on the left for a particular play, obviously you don't want to do it every set. Um, But yeah, look, I think it's great for the game. I think the more they they play that sort of uh, eyes up ad-lib footy, the the better the product's going to be. Yep, yep. The next game was 26 to 12 in favour of the Dragons over the Titans. It was always going to be a tough one for the Titans. Um, Dragons, obviously, um, Jamie Sauer did a great job bringing them in the grand final last year. He was on the podcast about six weeks ago chatting about that. Uh, Emma Tongato, again, first try scorer, right in the thick of it, had a great game. Tegan Berry had a double as well. Um, really good side that the Dragons have got. It does. It did make me worry a little bit for the Titans in this competition and how they're going to fare this year. They do look like the early favourites for the Wooden Spoon, which is um, a shame. But hopefully they can buck that. But, you know, it's uh, it was a pretty hard first-up game going to win stadium against the Dragons. But the, the one that I wanted to finish on and talk a little bit more about, it's your Broncos again, mate. It was not the podcast to fill in for. The uh, the Newcastle Knights you know, did the Broncos 32-14. to 14, And the Broncos women's team, up until last year, been in all the grand finals, that, that absolutely dominated the competition, you know, and they've still got the most titles out of anyone. They're, they're, they were the team to beat and the yardstick that no one could beat for a number of years when the competition started up. All of a sudden, the Newcastle Knights have come in and smashed them in the first round. Um, now, that's it's quite a statement, um, and it was pretty convincing as well. You know, the halftime at 16-10 in favour of the Knights, you sort of thought, look, the Broncos can come home. They've got a bit more of experience. They are the world beaters. Um, a lot of people do rate the Newcastle Knights side. They have had some really good signings in the offseason, but the Broncos really got put in their place 32 to 14. So they, it's not going well for any of the Brisbane teams at the moment up your neck of the woods. And I don't think it matters which sport you're playing either, which is quietly. Uh, the AFL, uh, Brisbane Lions, copy a bit of a pissing last weekend as well. So, yeah, look, it's, um, I think the, the Broncos uh, with the NRL, and that try again, with the NRLW, the hardest part for them, I guess, they've been developing players at such a high level for so long. And then, obviously, as we're getting in new clubs, those players, some of those players are going to move on to other clubs. So it's going to be really hard for the Broncos' retention team to try and keep hold of that experienced squad that's been winning football games for so long. So I think that's that's part of it, that they're obviously going to lose ladies down to two other teams that are coming in, especially with new franchises and such. So, look, that's a problem that they're going to have to overcome. Um, I think... Uh, from memory, the, the the team that that played last week wasn't too dissimilar to to what played in the in the final series last year, but yeah, look, it's it's something that they're going to have to overcome. They'll have to keep working on it. Um, obviously, scouting is um, is something that's going to be big with the AFLW, and whether that be poaching teams from uh, poaching players from other codes or uh, or like just doing the the talent scout. Um, 
what do you call it, like the performance testing and things like that and, and bringing younger players through. It's obviously something that a lot of the NRLW teams are going to have to work on. So I've got no doubt that the, the Broncos will stay up there. But, um, yeah, it just might be one of those off years for them. Yeah, and look, they do still have Ali Brigginshaw, who is an absolute gun. Um, she is yeah. in her 30s now, though. She's going to be 33 pretty soon, I think. And uh, that's that's going to be um, one of the things where they're going to need to be bringing through some of those younger girls uh, in the next couple of years to be able to, uh, I guess, take the place of some of these NRLW Broncos legends as they sort of pass through. Uh, look, let's move on to the next topic. And this one is the Brisbane Broncos. NRL side, and it is a bit more controversial. So during the week, we had it put on all the news feeds pretty quickly at the start of the week that Selwyn Cobbo was not going to be playing in last night's Thursday night blockbuster versus Parramatta Eels at Suncorp Stadium. The uh, initial uh, talk was it was listed as fatigue, and then I think a few people kind of jumped to the conclusions that, oh, maybe, you know, it's a mental health thing uh, and maybe he's um, got concussion symptoms that are still overlying there that, you know, need to be handled and all these other sort of things. Kevin Walters did several interviews and he made, he was adamant and he made it very clear and he spoke in length specifically on what occurred. And that was from his own mouth that Cobbo had approached him at the start of the week on Monday and said, he was feeling fatigued from the long season. He was tired and he basically, you know, wasn't, didn't know if he was up for the, for the match this weekend. Um, now, a few things that have come out of that. Now I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll own up to it as well. I made a uh, statement on, uh, on social media, which I didn't think was that controversial, uh, but apparently it was because there was a lot of Broncos fans that weren't happy with it. Uh, where I, I like, I questioned it extensively now i'm not going to back down from it um i will remind everyone the motto of the podcast you know the tagline and that is you know it's it's me calling it how i see it and it's no media bias no bullshit i'll say it how i think it is and if you disagree with me it's going to happen a lot because that's sport and we can always have a beer afterwards and i always will you know there's always room for civil debate and there always will be in sport got to be able to do it but i i have to say i thought this was extraordinary and I also thought it was even more extraordinary that Kevin Walters turned around and said, yeah, have the week off. Now, I just want to put my opinion in context here, okay? If it was anything to do with mental health stuff, if that came out afterwards, I, I would change my mind. If it was underlying concussion issues that were there, I'd change my mind. But we can only go on what the information is that's there. And I'd pretty much say at this point, it is 100% correct that the reason Cobo was out this week was because he was suffering fatigue. And if he's doing that, you know, let's put that in perspective, okay? I, he's a young player. I'm sure he'll improve from this. So I don't want it to sound like that I'm sticking the boot into one of your boys here, Tim, uh, because, you know, a lot of young players make mistakes. I think that this is a mistake for him. I do not understand how he's being lauded for doing this. Put it in perspective. He is a representative winger that just played for Queensland that is a strike weapon who is asking for a million plus a year on a contract extension. He's gotten to round 23, which is a make-or-break week for the Brisbane Broncos, that if they don't win, could cost them their season, and he doesn't need about to worry about rest because in two weeks' time, he can be sitting on a beach because he's not going to be playing football in September. You know, this is a pivotal game in the Brisbane Broncos season, make-or-break, and you're a bit fatigued and tired. Okay, I understand. 100% of the league is fatigued and tired at this point. They're all fatigued and tired. 50% of the league is probably playing with injury. And that's not an overstatement. That is fact. 
People aren't 100% healthy at this point. You will see a dozen players after their season finishes this year immediately book in for surgery in a hospital. There are guys playing through significant injuries and niggle injuries and everything else, and there are plenty of guys that are tired. I don't think anyone isn't. Fatigue's a real thing for a young player, Tim. I'm not going to understate that. But in such an important game, I just think that it's it's an error and that he, he had to sort of get up for it. And I don't think that Walter's response to just say, yeah, have the week off is the best one. I, I sort of think that if it was one of the better coaches, it gets managed better than that. You probably don't even hear about it. He has a heart to heart with him and says, mate, I understand that you've got a bit of fatigue. It's understandable. We probably should have rested you earlier and that's my fault. I just need you to get through this week. You know, if we can cement a spot this week, I'll rest you the next week. You know, but we, the boys need you this week. The team needs you this week. Even if you're feeling underdone, even if you're feeling a little bit tired, you know, I know that we can get you there. Or if it was Robbo or or Bellamy, you know, we've seen in the past, they just say, take three days off, mate. I don't want you to talk about football, hear about football. You're on leave for three days. Come back to me on, you know, Thursday morning, have, have a run and let's go for it and let's play. I, I just think that... I don't understand why everyone thinks that it was fine when the game was so big, Tim. You're a Broncos fan. <laughs> Am I completely out of line for how I'm seeing this? No, look, mate, I completely agree. Um, I, I think it's it's terrible. And I think, it, to be honest, it sets a really bad precedence as well. If that's going to be the culture of the club, look, you're just not feeling up to it today, um, then it, it's okay. You don't have to play this week. What happens if half a dozen of the boys go, oh, look, Kevy, yeah, look, I'm not feeling real flash either, mate. I've, um, oh, look, had a late night sitting up watching telly with the wife. Oh, I could probably do with a week off, buddy. Yeah, no, that, that's okay. But I'll, I'll be okay in, in a week and a half's time and, and we'll play that last game and then the season will be over. Like it's, it's, it's not not the way. It's, it's not a good look for any professional sportsman. How do you get to this time of the season? Don't get me wrong. Like you said, I understand fatigue and everything else, but like the show must go on. Um, and to look at the amount of money that they're getting paid, and like he wants to be a million dollar player, he wants to be on the same pedestal as um, as GI and um, some of the other boys that he's being put up there with. Uh, I'm sure it's it's great to to be in the same sentence as those sorts of players. Um, but, yeah, look, if you want to be that sort of player, then you've got to put everything else aside. If you've got a niggle, if you've busted, if you're whatever, then you've got to get back out there. You've got to bleed maroon and gold. Um, I don't think, like you said, I think if if it was in Robbo's case, um, and he came out a couple of times throughout the year, that he, he gave Teddy a, a few days off, um, like Latrell's had time off. Um, yeah, look, it's it's just interesting. It's um. I don't understand it myself. I really question if there's not more to it than that. And I think there's a lot of people in the general public that are saying the same thing. It was funny sitting at the football last night, a conversation started a couple of rows behind me. Um, they were asking each other exactly that. Oh, what's the deal with Cobbo? And have you heard about that? And fancy that at this time of the season and, and all that kind of stuff, especially for a must-win game. Like the way that they're looking at it is these last two games are must-win games. Um, the fact that we got our pants pulled down last night and now the Raiders are actually in front of us on four and against, I think, by one point. I think we're negative 26 there, negative 25 or something to that effect. So, look, if the, the Raiders win a game, then even if they win by one point, they're in front of us. Obviously, we've got the Dragons next week. And um, 
it's all well and good. Like I said before, it's, they took Payne Haas off after 50 last week or 52 and then figured, yeah, mate, look, we, we need you fit and firing for two more biggie games. And then he played 80 minutes last night or close to it. So, look, for, as far as Cobo having a rest just for shits and giggles or not quite feeling it, I, I think that's pretty disgusting. You, you paid money to go and play footy. I mean, don't get me wrong, mate. There's days where I don't want to get out of bed and go and face kids either. But at the end of the day, I'm getting paid my 80 to 100 grand a year or whatever the hell it is to, yeah, smile and go deal with it. If some kid tells you to bugger off, then you smile and you deal with it. So, look, I don't get it. It's um, professional sport, professional anything. You're paid to do a job. Go and do it. Yeah, and that's the thing too that I find disappointing and what I think that some supporters of this move, you know, miss the mark with. It's, it, it isn't played for marbles here. This is prof- this no. is professional sport, the number one competition in the world. It doesn't matter what age you are. I don't care if you're 19 or you're, or you're 48. If you're picked in that side and you've got a contract and that's your job, you're there because you need to do your job and you need to do it the best of your ability, the best you can do. Now, as Tim mentioned, you know all of us have days where we don't really like probably half the time when you get up for work, you don't really feel 100% ready to go, can't wait, love it. But you get it done because you need to. And it's no different in footy. It's no different in sport. You get it done and for different reasons. It's not just because you're getting paid a, a fortune to do it, although that is part of it. But you, you're getting it done for your teammates. You're getting it done for your club. You're getting it done for your fans. And I'm sorry, there is a lot of people that have sort of said, you know, oh, player welfare and player health comes first. Now, I'm just going to say it outright. That's absolute rubbish, okay? It does come first. But if you're tired and a bit fatigued from a long season, that isn't any. That isn't a big deal. That isn't a broken leg that you're playing through. That isn't um, depression that you're playing through. That isn't some mental health affliction that you've been pushing aside for for months and you have to get help with. It isn't okay. And there is always going to be a line in the sand where you say, "No, nah, sorry, that's not player welfare, and that's not something that you can't play through." Because otherwise, like Tim said. You may as well just let eight or eight or nine players out of a thirty-man squad every week say, "I'm not feeling 100 percent this week, or I'm tired, or I'm fatigued, or whatever." You don't, and this comes to the point that I'm going to make here, Tim. I don't understand, as someone who's not a professional athlete, you know, I'm a super competitive person. I've played sport all my life. I'm I've been overly competitive in my life when I've played sport, and I'm not even at an NRL level. I do not understand, you know, from an athlete's point of view, how you can want to step away because you're feeling a bit tired in such a crucial game. Like this is the stuff that these guys live on. You live for these big games. You live for these moments. And it was at Suncorp Stadium for the 250th game for Adam Reynolds, that team's leader. Like these are the times that you step up and aren't the times that you say, I'm going to step down. Mate, I've... um put a, a bit of a personal thing on it i um, i play masters football as in round ball football and i've um i'm not a good player i mean i'm, I'm an average player um i've always sort of been a, a, an okay player playing in in okay teams I, I've, I've got a really lovely bunch of blokes that i play with and for me for my mental health mate it's um i play now for mental health and, and sort of fitness a little bit of fitness but it's it's mostly just for keeping the brain happy and the brain ticking over i can't I've got a hip injury at the moment and I've missed the last two games. Um, we've sort of, I've been seeing physio. I actually went for an MRI scan yesterday on my hip and um, rang the physio straight after and, and sort of had a bit of a chat to him about it. And I'm going back in to see him next week. Long story short, mate, um, 
possibly talking retirement and this will be my third and final time that I've, I've gone into retirement and not coming back. Um, for me personally, it's something that I really need. I don't understand how some young bloke that's um, well being paid or not being paid, it, it wouldn't matter if he was playing club footy, park footy, whatever. I, I can't see myself going, yeah, shit, I'm just not feeling it. Um, I've I've been to my last three games and sat there on the bench and watched the team play and, and tried to coach and things like that as much as you can in Masters football. But um, like for me, I've just got to be around the team. Um, and I mean, I know in the NRL, it's not really a case of where you can just go and sit on the bench with your team and, and do whatever. But I mean, the NRL players, they, they can sit six or eight deep in their own little section in behind the bench. Um, when they're injured and stuff, you often see them there sitting in suits or in their track gear and whatever. But yeah, look, as somebody who's currently with a hip injury uh, that is busting their ass, wish I could play. Um, and I actually teed it up yesterday that the physio said, look, it was probably going to be okay. I can't really do any more damage. So, mate, I was going to be back on the park tonight to play football. Um, I'd already spoke to the coach and said, look, I, I can't play 80 minutes. But I'll definitely go out and try and do a job to help the team out because exactly like we said, mate, everyone's sore. It's been a long season. We just played three games in a week. And, I mean, we're, we're talking 40- and 50-year-old blokes. We're not playing in the Premier League anymore. Um, and, yeah, to, to just play three games in a week because of rain and COVID and we had catch-up games. So we're all playing busted. And, mate, I'm doing it for the team. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, we, we lord in rugby league all the time that, you know, you're going to push through for your team. You're going to do it for the boys. You're not going to let the team down, um, not let your teammates down, not let your jersey down, push through. You know, that's that's the thing. And, and we laud all that stuff. So I don't really understand how we we get we lack positive about this move from Cobbo. Now, I'm, I'm going to throw the caveat. I, I just think, I think, sorry to yeah. interrupt, mate. It would not surprise me in the slightest is, uh, I mean, whether we make finals or not, if we find out in a couple of weeks' time that there's something more to it than this, it just seems too left field uh, in a professional manner of any context where he just goes, nah. And, and that the coach says, oh, well, that's okay, mate, and give him a pat on the back. Yeah, and um, we're going to get straight into that now, actually. That's the next part of this to un- unpack a little bit. But, I mean, the, the thing I was going to throw out there is, you know, that's always a caveat, and if anyone's there, getting upset at home listening to me or in your car or on the train or wherever you're listening. I'll throw the caveat again. If new information comes to light, then I will completely change my statements and I'll completely change my point of view. But we can only go off what is there. And Kevin Walters has been very adamant that this is what it is. And this goes on to the management of it, okay? We have players who have varying degrees of personal issues that have stopped them from being able to play. Some of that has been mental health. Some of it has been um, a sick family member, something else going on, plenty of different personal things. What happens and how does those clubs handle those type of things and how do the coaches respond to it? They announce that they're out for personal reasons. Now, generally, everybody knows that that must be something serious personally and leaves it alone until you find out about it. Now, that was the other thing with me with Walters. Either he has handled it incredibly, awfully, horribly badly to the point you're not even the worst coach in the league, you shouldn't even be in the league, or it's exactly what he said it was because he was at pain several times to say this is exactly what it was and he pushed off every other notion. And normally you would just list them as out personal reasons. So why make all this stuff up and why keep perpetuating the lie? Now, maybe 
maybe it'll come out later, but I don't understand why he would do that because it's not protecting the player. It's making it worse. Everyone steers clear of the personal stuff because you know, geez, there's something serious personal going on. I hope the kid's okay. But if you throw out this fatigue and you keep throwing that narrative there that this is exactly what it is, then you just have to believe it. So it's either terrible management from him if it's not true or it's terrible management from him for that type of reason to sit out, you know, your star strike weapon in your outside backs. I just from Walter's point of view, I don't think there's anything, any coming back from this. And I don't understand the pats, pats in the back about it. If he was a good coach, Cobo would have been out there playing and none of us would know any about this because he would have managed it. He would have got Cobo up for the game because that's his job. He would have got Cobo to play through it because that's his job, you know, and Cobo would have been better for it and he probably would have developed. And I'm not going to put it all on Cobo either. He's a 19-year-old kid that's still learning how to play. Even though I said he's still a professional first grader like everyone else, he is still learning. This is a learning opportunity for him. And I'd say that his coach has probably let him down unless we have something bigger that comes out of it, in which case his coach is still let him down. Yeah, look, and, and you've only got to look at these days, mate, that with the extra support that's around professional sport, I mean, they've got life coaches, they've got like, they've got everything. Um, psychologists, they've got, it, it's endless. You would think somebody would have been able to talk to him and go, look, yeah, chin up, pal, let's get on with it. So it's like we've both said, mate, I, I think that something will come out of the pipeline in the near future and maybe things are not quite all as they seem. Whether there's contract talks or what, who, who knows? Yeah, I, I don't. I actually don't reckon anything's going to come out. I think this is what it is. And Cobo needed um, a, a, to have a learning opportunity where his coach guiding him, guided him to the right decision privately behind closed doors and he was out there playing last night. Now, to, to put things in perspective, if, if he needed a rest, the worst part is we've spent a crap load of time standing under our goalposts <laughs> out of the four weeks. So uh, it, it's not as if he's playing 80 minutes of football. We're playing about 35 minutes of, of straight footy and then the rest is standing under. Well, the you know, that's the other thing that comes up here, right? And it's like, by the way, Cobo has only played three games in a row yeah. and then he had a month off before that. It's not like he's played a full season. I know he had a month off because of, yeah, he had a concussion in origin and all that. I get it. But he hasn't gone through and played a, a whole season and he just he's just only come back for three games. But... How are the optics of it? Like, how does this look that your team's just gotten flogged by 60 at Suncorp and he's on a downward spiral going to miss the finals? Like, it just it doesn't look good after that Melbourne Storm loss to bail on your team the next week because you're feeling a bit tired and underdone. You know, that, that whole Broncos team looks tired and underdone at the moment. But let's let's finish up on another part. You've only got to look at... Yeah, look, I, I'm sorry. You've only got to look at the last two seasons as well, though, I guess, that, that maybe... Maybe in some cases, it's not just this year, it's last year and the year before that as well. Um, obviously, Cobo hasn't been around since for the start of the last three seasons, but it's, um, yeah, maybe, maybe I've got no doubt there's plenty of Broncos out there. There's certainly plenty of Broncos fans that are feeling the same way. Uh, watching the third hiding in four weeks last night, uh, mate, I, I think I'm, I'm just not feeling up to it. If we had a home game next week, uh, maybe, maybe I'm just not quite there. <laughs> Well, look, the Broncos definitely aren't quite there. And obviously they got flogged last night in a, in a terrible performance. Um, we're recording this one on a Friday rather than a Thursday night. And it, it was a terrible performance. And people have brought up, well, you know, he wouldn't have had any impact anyway. So it's probably good that he got rested. Look, when the Broncos are down 18 to 6, 24 to 6, that's the type of time where you need X-Factors and strike weapons. Now, they they probably wouldn't have won 
with how they played as a team and everything that happened last night. But I tell you what, like you can change the momentum of the game pretty quickly if you have a kid throw an X-Factor play down the sideline that he can do like he did in Origin when he set up that try with the little kick through and everything. Yeah, he could do that. And then he could get an intercept and run the length of the field 90 metres on the next play off the kickoff. And then all of a sudden, wow, you know, we're only six points down. And that completely can change the game. That's why you have outside backs that are these match breakers. And he's certainly going to help more than what Jordan Pereira is going to. You, you want to have your best team on the park. And even if Cobo is feeling tired or at 80%, he's still going to be better than Jordan Pereira. No disrespect to Jordan Pereira. So it is just, there's no way around it. Um, it's it, it's a strange decision all around on how it's actually worked out. Um, and I really think that if, if but I'll ask you as a Brisbane fan, right? Because I know you're on board with me on this, but just for the Brisbane fans or the fans in general that disagreed with me, like, no, nah, he should have a week off anyway, welfare and everything else. You shouldn't have to play through it, 2022 and all this sort of stuff. I tell you what, do you reckon that all these fans would say the same thing if it was week one of semifinals, do or die? Oh, absolutely not, mate. It'd be a completely different conversation. Um, and would Cobo ask or would he play through it? This is the thing, because it's do or die last night anyway, really. And that's exactly how I see it, mate. We're already playing semifinal football. Um, it, it's just about elimination now. So the, the fact that he needed to be there, we needed our best 17 players on the park. Um, I mean, obviously, we lost Reynolds early. Um, but, I mean, he's the kind of kid that can just spark something from nothing. And he's a confidence player, like we talked about earlier, players like Latrell, like Cody Walker. Um, Teddy, Manu, he's just the same kind of creature that just plays with confidence. And once you see him smiling and running and doing freakish things and everybody else just lifts that a little bit more. Put a little bit of a difference spin on it. I know um, we're obviously time crucial and everything else, but, mate, how does... When he's a player that wants that much money, how do you go now as Broncos CFO and, and those sorts of uh, Broncos hierarchy when you sit down and go, shit, this kid wants a million bucks a year. Yes, he's good. But if we get to these games that are must win and and he's just not feeling it, how the hell do we justify paying him a million bucks a season when we've got blokes that are going out there, might be missing tackles and whatever else, but we've got blokes that are going out there busting their ass week in, week out, that maybe aren't playing Origin, maybe some of those boys have just played 23 games straight, at which point we've we've had some wins and we've had some big losses. But how do you justify saying to a bloke uh, who might be on, say, 350 and wants another 50 um, so that he doesn't walk or, or whatever in comparison to a kid that's that wants a million bucks a year but just doesn't really feel like playing this week? Well, how do you reckon Payne Haas is feeling at the moment? How much has Haas played through this year? Absolutely. Shoulder and like, eh, there's a lot of players like that in that Brisbane team. But in saying that, the other thing to finish on with them is it's, uh, I, and I don't want to blame this on Cobo. Like, it's not going to sound, it's going to sound like I am. That sort of attitude, though, that Brisbane have at the moment is a real issue. And unfortunately, Cobo is kind of going to be lumped in with it, with that, with asking for a rest at this time for such a crucial game because. Brisbane just don't seem to want to get in the fight when it matters. They don't seem to want to do the hard stuff across the board as a team. You see that in their forwards, you see that in their team, and you see that in their defence with their missed tackles, how they're giving up, how they're not playing for each other. You see it all, and it was all on display last night in a thumping against Parramatta. You know, and that was at home, two games in a row at home where they've gotten absolutely flogged. You know, you have not seen that from the Broncos even in their wooden spoon year. It's it, it, it really does show quite a big attitude problem and culture problem potentially in that team. And I have to say, I like, I like Kevin Walters as a bloke. 
But as a coach, I haven't seen anywhere near enough from him to say that he's a good coach. And this is the other thing that this is going to going to be right. This type of decision for Kevin Walters, like if the if these type of decisions end up losing him a spot in the top eight in two weeks' time, they're all off. Jobs are on the line. You know, guys like Cobo and other star players resting, that could equate to Kevin Walters losing his job. Like there's a lot at stake here. And I'm not seeing Kevin Walters really direct the ship the right way either. And you're just not really seeing it in the team. And again, not putting it all on Cobo, but I guess that type of attitude or that type of where he's at kind of speaks to the entire team with what you're seeing happen on the field. Hmm. No, absolutely, mate. And there's for the the one thing that Kevy's been good at was trying to get the culture and get the Bronco back in the Broncos, but um, yeah, look, it's um, it's it's not a good look. Let's put it that way. No, not a good look. And we'll finish up on that. We've got some a couple other topics to finish on, including the Legend Rewind, which is a great one. Uh, but before we do, I need to mention the great sponsor of the All-Stars podcast in Top Sport. You can go to topsport.com.au, have a look at the odds because they are often the best in market, not just in sport, but also in racing. Uh, they've also got the player performance markets, which are really fun to bet on. It's like fantasy sports betting. You can bet the over and under on fantasy points scoring. And, geez, they got some good lines this week. Um, if you fancy the Penrith Panthers to smash the Warriors, minus 32 and a half at $1.95 there. Tell you what, I really do like my Roosters, though. $2.35 for the win as the Outsiders versus Storm. Uh, that's a good one as well. Uh, topsport.com.au, you can go there. You can create an account today. Make sure you gamble responsibly. But if you are going to create an account on Topsport, make sure you use the promo code for this podcast. That is SC All Stars, SC All Stars, all one word. If you put that in as your promo code when you create an account today, They'll take great care of you because I know that you're one of our listeners. But topsport.com.au, go jump on and uh, give them a punt today. They are phenomenal. Next topic, Ben Hunt coming up to a contract renewal. The Dragons have thrown up a 700K offer and he's rejected it. Um, A few people have sort of said that's a low ball offer. Um, you know, it's bad of the Dragons. Uh, it opens the door for where he could go elsewhere um, with other teams maybe sniffing around. I'm not sure how you saw it, Tim. For me, how I kind of saw it was, one, I think that Hunt is uh, is worthy of a, a, a high contract. He's a half that's possibly going to win a Dallingham medal for a side that's not in the finals. That's all the positive stuff, you know, and certainly he, he's a great leader at the club and someone they can't afford to lose. Uh, the other side of me kind of said he's 32. He's going to be 33, 34 during this contract, 35 when it ends. Um, you know, it's, it, he is older. There's no getting around that. And he's also a guy where, you know, they're not going to make the finals this year. So that's something to consider. You know, if if they don't have him this year, as good as he's playing, you know, maybe they're 13th, but instead they're going to be 10th. You know, is that really that much of a difference where you break the bank and say he's a million-dollar player? Uh, I don't think so. I think that those are circumstances that have to be taken into account. I would probably be happy. I, I probably would have offered him 800 grand, so I guess it is a lower offer. But I think the thing that the Dragons are doing is what most clubs do. You know, they'll, they'll throw up a lower offer initially. I don't think it's a low ball offer. I don't think it's an insulting offer when you consider the other factors, but it is low. But I reckon that they're looking around at the market, Tim, going, Who's going to sign him? And this has happened with plenty of players before, right? It happened with Latrell with the Roosters when he wanted 1.2 million. 
you know, the only team that was going to offer him anywhere close to it was going to be the Tigers. No one else could or would. Uh, and this is the same, right? If you look through the NRL, most teams have an established halfback or most teams have one that they're, in, they're invested in. There's probably maybe only three or four that you could look at that he might move to. And even out of those, do they have the salary to say he's a million bucks a year? Um, they, you know, probably only a couple of clubs do. So I think that the Dragons are being kind of strategic about it. Um, and I also think that they're being a little bit wary of those couple factors with Hunt. I, I tend to think they'll get a deal done at the 800 to 850 range, and that's fair. Uh, where do you kind of see the Hunt contract negotiations at the moment? Yeah, it's, a, it's almost smart business on the Dragons' point of view, isn't it? That, like you said, there's not a lot of clubs out there that, are, that have got the money and that are chasing, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sure there's plenty of clubs that would love to have Ben Hunt on the books, but the fact that if he's a million or 1.1 or whatever it is that he's getting paid at the moment, it's pretty hard for a lot of the clubs to try to find that money. Not only that, I think for the Dragons as well, they need to spend money to make that team better. Um, And the only way they can spend money is they've got to cut a few corners. If that means saving two or 300 grand on Ben Hunt's wages and still keeping him, then that's probably good business on their behalf. From Hunt's point of view, I mean, he's, he's still playing Origin. There's talk that, that he could, I mean, it was only three or four weeks ago, there were still plenty of pundits that were saying he could be the starting nine on the Kangaroo Tour at the end of the year. So, I mean, obviously we've got, um, he's a very different sort of number nine to, to Harry Grant or to, um, uh, to Cook. But, yeah, look, at the moment he's getting the job done. He's obviously got the versatility that he can play in the halves and, and you can play one of those other boys as a 14 off the bench um, and move things around. But, look, I really like Ben Hunt. He's forever going to be scarred for his 2015 grand final. Um, and I think the general public's never going to let him forget that. Um, I don't think any football fans going to let him forget that. Certainly no Broncos members. But, I mean, if, even if he was offered to the Broncos, um, obviously we've got A-Ray, but if he was offered to the Broncos tomorrow, I, I think that they'd be crazy not to even have a think about it and try and find a spot for him somewhere. But, yeah, as far as smart business goes, I, I agree with it from the Dragons' point of view. I don't think it's insulting. I think it's just a place of where the Dragons are at. They need to find money. They need to buy top-class players to get them out of the bottom half of the draw. Um, out at the bottom half of the ladder. So, look, they, they don't really have too many other options. And if he's their biggest money earner, then it probably has to start with him. How much do you think it's a fair offer from the Dragons to finish on for both parties for him to um, contract to them and stay? Yeah, look, I agree with you. I think 800, 850 is, is probably reasonable. I mean, you can't be talking same money as like Munster. You can't talk same money as Cleary. Um, I know in the Podmasters group, someone posted last week the, um, I think it was the top 50 or top 60 money earners or something. And you, you looked at some of those and you're just shaking your head thinking, oh my God, that is just such stupid business. Mm. Like you went through the top top 50 and you just went, there's no way in hell you'd be paying that amount for some of those players. Like, look, at, I can understand why the Storm's letting basically just about their whole forward pack go and they're all going to the Dolphins. I bet the Dolphins aren't paying them the same amount of money that they're getting paid at the Storm. I bet they're going there for unders. And in this day and age, while there's still so much um, unsure around the salary cap with the next TV deal, uh, look, I, I, I don't think teams are going to be able to keep forking out a million plus for players. I, I think the, especially now as well with the Dolphins coming in, like the, the player pool is, is sort of getting smaller. Maybe some Clubs are going to have to pay overs, but I think you've just got to play a bit smarter. Mm. 
Well, another big contract that's um, really blowing up at the moment is the Munster one. And yeah. obviously the Storm released their, their five contracts that they were going to re-sign um, and <laughs> it was uh, not Munster. So that's been a, a real tug of war with Munster. They've upped their offer to a million dollars a year, which I think is fair. I think a million dollar a year for Munster is fair. Um, I wouldn't want to pay him more if I was the Storm. Um, but I also kind of think that some people are talking about, you know, they prioritise Grant and Hughes and, you know, Munster's getting a little bit older, but people need to remember that, you know, at the start of the year, he had a bit to make up for. He was in rehab last year. There was uh, a few issues and things. I think that it was smart from the Storm to see how that sort of unfolded. Uh, and they did, and, you know, they've offered him a million dollars a year. But in saying that, the Tigers are now supposedly, even though they've now denied it, um, the rumoured Tigers offer was $7 million over five years. Um, now, for someone like the Tigers, I think that's probably a good offer, and they probably need to do it. Um, for somebody like the Dolphins, who are still in the hunt, I think they do need to pay him $1.2 or $1.3 million or something, uh, and maybe that'll get him to move. So I, I do think that he's going to be more valuable to one of those franchises on that type of money than what he will be to the Storm, who can't afford it. Um, so that does make sense. Ultimately, though, I don't think there's any way he goes to the Tigers. We've seen this before. You know, I spoke about Latrell before. You know, Latrell shunned the Tigers, took a 400 grand a year pay cut initially to go to South Sydney. You know, it's that that tells you where the Tigers are at and trying to get star players and also a, a wider problem in rugby league at the moment. Uh, but also, you know, the Dolphins are there and they've been there the whole time. And I actually do think that they're a real chance of being able to snag him away, uh, mainly because one, Wayne Bennett, uh, two, it's also got a lot of Storm boys that are now going over there. You've got the Bromwich brothers, you've got Kafuzi, and you've got some others that might be making their way as well. Uh, that's mm. going to be, you know, a lot easier having, you know, five or six of your teammates moving across with you. Um, and I do think that that then becomes a story of, well, if I've got that sort of situation, I've got the chance to be the face of a new franchise and a fresh start, and I'm going to get, 300,000 a year more and an extra year on my contract, you know, that starts to become a bit more appealing, um, especially if Bellamy's actually not going to be coaching for that much longer. So I do think that the Dolphins and the Storm are probably 50-50 for me on who's going to get Cameron Munster. But how do you see the Cameron Munster tug of war unfolding, Tim? To be brutally honest, mate, I, I see him as a, as a Dolphins player. Um, I think there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, you can sort of say that the Tigers are shit and they've been shit for a long time. And there's no real, no real way that they're going to get any better. Um, and then you toss that argument up. I mean, it wouldn't matter. I think if they were both paying the same paycheck, uh, Tigers versus Dolphins. Um, I think there's a lot more incentive to go to a new franchise, especially like you said, you've, you've got some of your mates going there already, assuming that he gets along with the Bromwich boys and, and Kafusi. Um, but I think the fact that he's played around those boys so long, he's already got some faith in them but also the system that, that, that they would play. Um, obviously, Wayne Bennett's no slouch as a coach, and he's going to be very similar in a lot of ways to Bellyache in that he's not going to put up with any shit, and you're going to know what to expect. So, look, I I think it's a good move from the Dolphins. I, I, I'm not sure what the actual figure was, but I, I thought I read a couple of weeks ago there was talk of 1.5 per season. Um, that's, that's. I think they spoke about needing to do that to to get him to move, but I, I, that's one of the things with the Dolphins too. Like they can afford to front end it. Like they can afford to go one point five, one point five, one point two, one point two on like a four year. Yeah. 
and, and that sort of thing could work because they've got the money up front because they've obviously got a blank roster. Mm. And, and that's exactly right. But I, I think from the Dolphins as well, and, and also I think Munster's smart enough to know that if he signs with the Dolphins, then there's a good chance that other players like him will follow suit um, rather than sort of him going there and playing with a reserve grade team, trying to turn him into an NRL club. Um, I, I think the fact that if he goes there, he knows he's got enough star power and especially the fact that he'll be back in Queensland. I, I think that, that it's it's sort of smart business from the Munster camp as well as from the Dolphins. Yeah, and look, it does the other byproduct of all these discussions is that it does shed a not so positive light on where the NRL is at for the teams that are in the doldrums that players don't want to go to. Like if if that seven million dollar offer is true and he stays with Melbourne for a million bucks for a couple of years, it really is going to say that if you're one of the bottom dwellers, the team people don't want to go to, it, it's just, it doesn't matter how much you're going to pay someone. You may as well pay them $2 million a year as an offer because they're not going to take it. It's um, it, it's really opens up the discussion to what we need to do to fix. Um, I made the joke in one of the chats that, uh, you know, they did, I wonder how far away we are from a, a player getting equity in a team type of scenario. Yeah. Andrew Bogut did it with the Sydney Kings in the NBL. You know, they signed him to come over from the NBA and to quit the NBA and to come over to the NBL. And if he stuck through his contract for a few years, he became, a, I think it was a 10% owner mm. of the Sydney Kings and that enacted his ownership once he finished and retired. Um, you know, obviously, the, I don't know how much the Tigers would be worth at the moment, but probably not a lot. Yeah, about, you know. about $1.98, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, you find it's a pocket uh, change in the ashtray in the car. It would be interesting. Like, I, I, I wouldn't mind some a bit more contract complexity where you get some of this stuff. Like, especially for a new franchise. Like, imagine saying, you know, we're going to give you, uh, we're going to give you a profit share at the end for ten years. You know, you build this club for five years, and if you do a good enough job, the next ten years you're going to get fifteen percent of our profits or something. You know, I don't know how that works with the salary cap. I'm just playing around. That, that Other was, sports do it, but it's, it's interesting. Part, mate, that how how the hell do they police that? Uh, that that puts the uh, the the roosters sombrero and, and Uncle Nick's bloody brown paper bag <laughs> uh, theory <laughs> that just blows it out of the water. Well, we don't we don't need anyone to pump out our team, mate. We're already up there. It's all right. But maybe maybe the Dolphins. Um, look, the other guy that's gone in a different direction and is looking for a new club, it seems, is Tavita Pangai Jr. Mm. He's playing park footy this week in New South Wales Cup, and it's quite a big fall for Grace uh, for him. It's a fall from Grace that sees him getting paid nine hundred twenty five thousand this year to now be playing park footy now and probably for the rest of the season. It looks like. And look, a lot's been put on the dogs for signing him and a lot's also been put on TPJ for his performances. I'm going to defend both slightly, just looking at it from you know a bit of a different angle, I guess. But to me, Tim, I think as far as the signing goes, you know, 925 grand, a lot, the, the Broncos are footing a lot of that bill. For all intents and purposes, his contract next year with the dogs is all paid by the dogs and that's about 700 grand. Now, I think that when TPJ... Yeah, before he was a bulldog, he was a six fifty, seven hundred grand a year player. So I don't think that's bad at all. And if you're paying the upper echelon of what he was worth on the market, and you needed to do that because you're the bulldogs team that's you know down in the doldrums and no one wants to play for, and you're trying to rebuild, it makes perfect sense. So I've got no issue with the seven hundred k that he got given because at the time I think he was worth it. Uh, is he worth it based on his performances this year? No, but I'm going to defend TPJ a little bit. He 
I still think he's a very good player. I would love to get him in the Rooster side and have 200 grand a year of his contract paid for and, and pay 500. You know, one of the things with his season this year, players need consistency. They need confidence. And he hasn't gotten any of that from that, that club at all. He's gotten signed to this big money to come in. Uh, he's been shafted from edge to, to lock to front row to bench to starting to not to left right out all these different things to, you know, sometimes he started and he only played 31 minutes anyway. You know, it's just, there's been no consistency. I don't think the Bulldogs or the coaching staff there have done TPJ a service to play his best football as much as TPJ needs to take ownership as well of not playing his best football. So I actually think there's a bit of blame on all sides and I don't think the TPJ is the terrible player that can't be offloaded that people are talking about. I'd actually take him. Um, at a reasonable price from the Bulldogs. And I'd be surprised if a few other clubs aren't secretly circling. Surely, surely there are other clubs. Like, if you could get him back to half as good as what he what he was in his peak, he's certainly a much better player than what he's playing at right now. To put a uh, very interesting spin on it, mate, uh, 925k a year. Obviously, he's getting paid for 52 weeks. But you put it in perspective, uh, divide your 925 by 25 rounds of footy, uh, he's getting paid thirty-seven thousand dollars to to run around park footy for eighty minutes this week. It's a bit different to the hundred bucks for a win and a carton of VB, isn't it? From the and old that, days. <laughs> oh, mate, that's exactly what I'm thinking. Back back in the old days, where where the coach would put a carton in the in the dressing shed afterwards, and there's your there's your match payment, boys, and and here's a hundred bucks for a man in the match. You go thirty-seven grand, and it's just. When you're talking upwards of a million dollars a season, all of a sudden, like as a sports fanatic, we all talk about the crazy money in the NBA and the crazy money in the EPL. When you're talking a million bucks a season and you put it in perspective over the amount of games that they play, like there's there's plenty of Premier League players that are decent Premier League players over, over in England that are on 50 grand a week. You're talking TPJ on 40 grand a week when you're looking at, at 25 rounds of football. All of a sudden, the NRL is not that far off the mark in some cases with uh, with player match fees and things like that. Oh yeah, if you're looking at a per match basis for sure. Um, I'm just I'm just surprised that all the media is painting him as someone who's not shown any ability this year and been terrible and isn't worth even anyone having a crack at. Like if it was a, if it was another player in another situation, they'd be saying that the club stuffed him around or he's a byproduct of the the club that he's playing for, which hasn't been playing well and stuff. But it just, because it's TPJ, he gets in trouble. Um, he gets his suspensions. He, he plays a little bit aggressive and stuff. I just think that people are on the side of uh, not giving him the benefit of the doubt or, or not giving him enough credit. Like he's still a young man um, yeah. in his mid twenties. In his, he's got his prime ahead of him. You know? Absolutely. Like I, I just, if I, like the Dolphins should be saying, you know how much will you pay, and then secretly, you know, putting putting them on mute and saying to their team, it doesn't matter what number they say, we're going to take him because, like, if they get him for six hundred grand next year, that's a great buy. Like, I, I just don't understand yeah. it. I, I'll just throw his form this year out the window and just say only a part of that's for him. And it, and we've always known that he's sort of a bit of a a little bit of a loose cannon, but that's also comes through an attitude where if you are not got good coaching staff or you're not motivating him or, or keeping him in line, then he's kind of going to go off the rails a little bit. And you saw that he looked unfit this year. Um, at times he looked disinterested, but yes, I sort of think that the Bulldogs have got a lot to blame for that. 
Oh, absolutely, mate. If you're not playing 80 minutes every week, I mean, or if you're not in the starting side every week, all of a sudden you're going to get the shits pretty quickly. You go, if you're a million dollars a year player um, and, and clubs are playing, paying or offering top dollar for you, you're going there to play football. You're not going there to sit on the bench more often than you're, than you're on the park. Um, and like you said, he's, he's, he's mid-20s, so he's, he's in his prime. You, he's the sort of bloke that you want on, a, on the pitch, especially with a team like the Bulldogs, because they need game breakers. Um, and, and I think, like you were just saying, a, a move like going to the Dolphins would probably be a really good move for, for a player like TPJ. Go and be under a decent coach like, um, like Wayne Bennett. But every side needs a mongrel. And I think that maybe now that we've lost Matt Lodge at the Broncos and we've lost TPJ and, and we've sort of got all these really nice guys around now, maybe that's what we've been missing. Maybe, maybe we need to be putting our hat back in the ring for him. Uh, we we need him to play. We need him to not be suspended. But I mean, maybe maybe even times are tough. You need a mongrel just to pick up the ball and run bloody hard. Like we've we've got Payne Haas, who obviously does that. But when the coach has taken him off, when the game's done and dusted and not worth uh, breaking him, like you bring someone like TPJ on. I mean, like we were talking before. Look at the Roosters and and look at the forward pack, the 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 four front row rotation that they've got now. Like you you add TPJ into that mix. Um, look at what Matt Lodge has done to them since he's moved over from the Warriors. You pull Matt Lodge out and you put TPJ in there, I don't think you'd see much difference. No, and like people have short memories too. Like the as bad as people think that he's gone this year, early in the season he was leading the league in offloads. Yeah. He was averaging over six offloads a game for I think the first two months of the year. And that was in you know, limited minutes and stuff at times, not playing his 80 on the edge like he thought he was going to be. So he's he's definitely got value. I, I, I think that somebody smart is going to pick him up and they're going to get a good deal on it and he's going to prove that it's uh, going to be a good move. He's going to play better than what he did this year, that's for sure. Huh. Let's finish on a legend of the game, legend rewind. He's a big fella, six foot four, 120-odd kilos in his playing days, front rower. Not quite a one-club man, Tim. Almost. 235 games for the Brisbane Broncos. 74 games for the Penrith Panthers. 309 games overall. Big Petro, Simon Receiver. What a legend of the Brisbane Broncos, especially. Um, also, captain the Panthers, though, too. And has also been a, a staple in the Australian teams and the Queensland teams. 33 games for the Queensland Origin team. Uh, 45 games for Australia. Played six games for Fiji as well, which is outstanding. He was such a good prop. Uh, before I talk about how I remember his career and a few of his other accolades, how do you remember him as a as a, a Brisbane Broncos fan? Yeah, mate, I absolutely loved him. I've got all the time in the world for him. Absolute lovely, lovely bloke too. Um, I work with some staff uh, at the at my school that uh, that have got connections with the Broncos from ex players and things like that as well. And they all just say he is just the ab like the bloke would literally give you the shirt off his back. Um, he he just uh, breathes the the Fiji culture in that they're just such absolutely lovely, lovely people. Um, the thing I like about him most, outside of his footy, is then once he actually did retire, he went back to club footy and and kept playing club footy, not because he. Um, wasn't an NRL standard anymore. I, I think he probably could have played a bit longer if he wanted to. But the fact that he went back to club footy because he knew what he could give a club um, and that other players would want to play with him, 
um, and, and just to put back into the community. So, look, I, I love him. I know the last time I was on the show, we were talking about Alan Langer. I think the time before that was Webke uh, or vice versa. But I put him in the same boat as Shane Webke. He's, um, he's just a, a massive human who gave everything that he possibly could. He left everything on the park uh, and, and has come out of sport. Uh, still a lovely bloke and, and every, a well-respected bloke. Yeah, he really was. And he came on the scene in 1998. Uh, and then just really became a staple. But the one of the biggest memories I have is that partnership with Shane Webke. Shane Webke and Petro Seveneseva were probably one of the great, definitely one of the great prop partnerships of all time. And they were together for the best part of a decade. Um, and that was just an outstanding prop combination that was also an Australian combination of front rowers as well. Uh, and that engine room was just unbeatable in the middle. He hit hard seven receiver. I don't think anyone wanted to run at him. And he just didn't move when you hit him. Um, he was just an outstanding prop. He didn't. He wasn't one of those uh, props, I guess, like I spoke about Lazarus on this podcast before. We've delved into Artie Beatson but haven't done a legend rewind on him. He wasn't one of those um, props that had uh, other strings to their bow as much like athleticism or all these offloads or attacking flair like an Arthur Beetson could have and things. He was just a hard-nosed, uh, prototypical laboratory-style prop that if you put everything into the computer about what a prop was meant to be, it, it, it was going to come out with a Petro. You know, And he was also well-respected, like you said, but people didn't like running at him and they didn't like having to tackle him either. He was tough as nails. And that massive brick of a frame, like everyone you know, sort of said Shane Webke was this brick that they had to hit. You know, Petro was not much different. Um, it was quite the partnership. Looking at the, the the stats on what he achieved, you know, you mentioned his work and how he was so respected outside of the game. RLPA Players Champion in 2008 and Harry Sunderland Medal in 20, 2006, sorry. Um, got Dalian Prop of the Year, but he also went on two kangaroo tours. Big deal is that he got two premierships with those Broncos sides in 1998 and then 2006, and over 400 first-class games as well. Uh, big Fijian came to Australia, uh, played for the Australian team, and was just, I think, loved by everyone is the other thing too. I don't remember anyone saying a bad word about him, and I remember several different players, whether in the representative arena for the Kangaroos or whether in the Broncos or even the Panthers' sides, that just spoke glowingly about his leadership. Uh, he was just a guy that nobody wanted to let down. He was such a good leader and he would go out there on the field and just lead the way every time. And there were that many different quotes that I saw. I couldn't just pick one where everyone was saying the same thing. It was like they felt better and like they could win a game in a forward pack if they were a forward standing alongside Petro Sivinaceva because he just gave that confidence and he just demanded that respect and he just led. Uh, so he was... I wouldn't, I don't want to disrespect him, but I wouldn't say that he's the greatest prop for me. You know, I've always got Lazarus up there, Artie Beetson, but certainly those guys that are right on their heels when you get to the Webkeys and Sivan Asiba's right there, along with a few other guys that were like that, that were just absolute beasts. Um, right. You've got any um, standout memories as a Broncos fan that you remember from Petro or any particular games? I think the grand finals was, was pretty amazing. He, um, it's just, in the last final, the, he was just one of those blokes that even when, when things got difficult, it was just throw me the ball and get behind me. Um, he would take the big hit-ups. 
beat them, give the big hits in defence. And and that's probably a bit different to some of our modern-day front rowers. I think you, you get a lot of front rowers now that sort of uh, are, are really good at defence, really good, uh, but they're not necessarily as good in attack. Like like you said, he's, he wasn't the offloading forward. He was just just unafraid to get in and do the hard work. He knew that he could make a difference. I think that was the biggest thing. And, and again, I guess that's probably what it comes back to with um, – him going to play back for, for Fiji late in his career and then going back to park footy afterwards because he knew he could make a difference and that's all he really wanted to do. So I think as a, as a Bronco, he's probably one of our greatest of all time. It's really good to still see him uh, in and around the club. Um, he was at the footy. He wasn't there last night, but he was there last week um, and, and they were interviewing him on the field. He's, um, he's like we said, mate, he's a lovely bloke, but um, just one of those players that everyone wanted to be around him. Everyone wanted to, to work hard with him, and he just brought the best out of other players. I don't remember ever seeing him hurt. No. <laughs> That's it. Do, you, do you remember seeing him getting hurt or laid out? Because I don't remember it once. Didn't, didn't he? He played as – I'm just trying really hard to remember, but I thought he played. One of the major semi-finals was it with a broken arm, or he broken arm. He come yep. back from a broken arm, and I remember he had it padded up and stuff. And everyone just going like, "What the hell are you doing this for?" Like you, it was like he broke it the previous game, or broke it two weeks ago, or, or something like that. I can't remember it exactly, um, but yeah, I, I do remember it was semi-finals, and and he played with a broken arm. Yeah, you you never would have been able to tell he was hurt, and that was he's just so tough, yeah. tough as nails. And to finish up, like so, surely it's the the best nickname of all time. Petrol seventy cents a liter. That's it. Come on, <laughs> Roy and HG. What a what a what a nickname. Petrol seventy cents a liter. Well, Petro seven deceiver. Fantastic career. Great legendary one to do. That is the podcast. Tim, thanks for jumping on board and talking some footy with me. It was a very Broncos centric podcast. That so worked out well for you. Yeah, mate. I, I needed some kind of pick me up after the last three weeks. Cheers. Well, everyone listening, you can download the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Amazon Audible, pretty much everywhere. You can also follow us on Twitter, NRL underscore SC underscore All Stars. And make sure you hit up topsport.com.au if you want to have a punt, use promo code SC All Stars. Thanks very much for listening again. It's shaping up as a really, really great round of footy, round 24. We'll be back on Tuesday with the TLT for Supercoach for the final round of the season. Got plenty more episodes coming up, though, with uh, some Supercoach episodes after the season's over as well to do a Supercoach review. And we've also got plenty of talking footy episodes, especially with the World Cup coming up. I'm going to continue on, and we're going to have some talking footies just in the off-season as well during the semifinals and everything. So make sure you keep tuning in. Thanks very much for the support, but more importantly, make sure you enjoy your footy. Hey now, you're an all-star. Get your game on, go play. Hey now, you're a rock star. Get the show on, get it.